Those of you who are parents of young children, or maybe even not so young children, how many times have you had to repeat yourself in giving instructions or making requests of them? How many times do you repeat yourself every morning as you try to get everybody up, washed, dressed, fed, bags packed and out of the door on time? And why is that so familiar? Because if that's not you, well, either your children are a freak of nature or you're running the next parenting classes that we're holding here. But it's not just the children, is it? We all know we have to vacate this building at a certain time after each service, but always one of the deacons has to turn into Mr Nasty chuck everybody out onto the street in so many things we're naturally slow to respond and we need continual prompts and reminders too often more often than we should and it can be true of us spiritually too can't it so many lessons and truths that when we grasp them when we understand them if we will only accept them and embrace them then it is that we begin to live the life that God would have us live as a follower of Christ and as a child of God. But we need so many continual promptings and reminders. As we go through this passage this morning, there are one or two themes that you're going to hear that aren't new. Things that we've already gleaned out of Ezra. But I want to challenge you not to immediately start thinking to yourself, yes, yes, you've already said that bit. Because God has chosen to repeat it in the text of his word. So if you hear something that you've heard before, what all of us really should be asking ourselves is, How have I changed and grown in the light of that since God last laid that before me? And there's a few new things for us to consider out of this passage this morning as well. What I want to do is uh, in two parts this morning. What we'll do first of all is just look at the text and go through it so that we can understand what's actually written here. And then to consider some important truths and lessons and principles for our our own learning, for our own encouragement and for our own living as well. So first of all, let's consider the actual text that's in front of us on the page and consider what's going on here. Well, what we have before us from Ezra is letter number six. Another letter. We've already... Scene 5 in Ezra. Now in chapter 4, first of all, we have a letter written by regional governors in Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes, same king, opposing the rebuilding work in Jerusalem. And in that same chapter, the reply from the king, agreeing with everything that's been said and ordering them to stop the Jews building. And so his reply, that's letter number 2. Thirdly, there's a letter from the governor Tatanai in chapter 5. He writes to King Darius, 
seeking advice and instruction regarding the building of the temple in Jerusalem. A few years have gone by, new kings in place. What are we doing about this? And then we read the reply from Darius in chapter 6. So that's letter number 4. Now I'm saying that these verses, 11 to 28, is letter number 6 on the basis of an assumption, which is this. That the request that Ezra makes to Artaxerxes, that's mentioned in verse 6, was a request made in writing. Almost certainly that was the case. I think that's a very reasonable assumption based on everything that we've seen so far. And so that request made by Ezra to Artaxerxes in verse 6 would be letter number 5. The only difference is we don't have the text of that letter recorded. But almost certainly a letter was sent and that would be letter number 5. And so the reply from Artaxerxes makes it letter number six. Another assumption, I think, which is also very reasonable, is that because we read that Ezra made a request to Artaxerxes, it is very reasonable for us to suppose that this letter from Artaxerxes is his reply to the request of Ezra, Therefore, this letter gives us an insight into the things that Ezra had requested. I'm fairly sure Artaxerxes didn't think up all of this stuff himself, but is actually responding to the requests that were put to him by Ezra. I think that's a very uh, safe assumption to make. So we get an insight in this letter as to what it was that Ezra asked for and here is Artaxerxes giving his reply and sanctioning Ezra's request. And there are certain familiar tones and phrases from earlier letters but there's also something new within this which we'll come to shortly. We see in this letter wonderfully at verse 13 an open invitation. Artaxerxes demonstrates what many of us might call tremendous magnanimity, a generous heart in the king. He's amazingly generous towards them. Any who wish to volunteer to go up to Jerusalem can go. No restrictions. Anyone who wants to go with Ezra, you're free to go. And perhaps unusually for someone in his position back in those days, there are no awkward strings attached that make it impossible for the people to accept the offer. Everything is for their good and for their benefit and they can accept it and take it. It's a wonderful thing that the king is doing for them here. All favouring God's people, nothing going against them. Remarkable, from a pagan king. And tied in with that, thirdly, what we see in the letter is this generous provision. You see it in verses 15 and 16 where he talks about all the silver and gold that they can take for the house of God. Then from verse 19, picks up that theme again. uh, Articles that are going to be given to you. Free will offerings that will come from the people 
in the land all the things that you need if if there's anything that we've missed you can have it i'll pay for it out of my own treasury unbelievable and uh, when you get there everyone over there in that region all who are my governors and officials over there, they're all to work in your favour towards you. Wow. An amazing thing. This almost going overboard in generosity to provide for the Lord's people. Quite a remarkable thing. Perhaps the, the cynics amongst us might think, well, our tax Xerxes doesn't want to be seen less generous than his predecessor and he wants people to see that he's at least as good a king as those who've gone before him well maybe there's a little bit of that in the king who knows Uh, those ancient kings often often had egos the size of their kingdoms maybe there was something of that in Artaxerxes but what a, a generous provision for God's people what an encouragement that is to see that that is possible in the midst of this wicked world in which we live. But we also notice that Artaxerxes, quite how much he understands of this, but he recognises that there is a spiritual commission upon Ezra. Look at the end of verse 14. You're doing these things with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. He recognises there's something about this man Ezra. There's a very specific commission that this man has. There's a very specific work that this man is going to do when he gets back to Jerusalem. He mentions it again at verse 18. According to the will of your God. And then you see it again in verses 20, from verse 25 into verse 26. According to your God-given wisdom, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who don't know them. It's a remarkable thing that Artaxerxes is saying here. He's actually telling Ezra to go back home and teach people the Bible. What a wonderful thing. There's the mention of prescribed forms of worship and offerings and sacrifices, yes. But there's a a particular emphasis here on the law of God, on the word of God. You don't find that in the letter that was written by Darius. That aspect is absent back then, but it's included this time around. The teaching of God's word, the following of God's word, is to be the main focus of Ezra's mission. All that is laid out for us in this letter, written by the king. What must Ezra have thought when he started reading? Maybe, maybe he had absolutely no idea what the response was going to be. And it was with fear and trembling that he began to read. Who knows? But what a great thing. What wonderful mercy God is showing to his people on this occasion. Well, that's the text of the letter in brief. That covers the main nub of what's included here, but... Well, what can all this mean? What are the lessons that are here for us to learn? Well, there's a first one, which is a topic that we probably don't talk about very often, but it's something that all of us have to face and deal with as Christians. And it's this one. Submission to earthly authorities. 
Do you think about that often as a Christian? Submitting to earthly authorities. Now this is a very plain principle that's taught throughout the Bible. I'll go through that briefly with you. Ezra doesn't ignore Artaxerxes as being of no importance. He pays him due respect as the king. He respects him as that country's monarch. He asks his permission for that which he needs to do. Ezra doesn't say to himself, I'm under God, therefore I can do whatever I like. No, he can't. Quite the opposite. When Moses returned to Israel, when Moses returned to Egypt, he didn't say to Israel, Come on, God wants us out of here, so we're off. He went to Pharaoh. He went to the king. And he sought Pharaoh's consent. Because that's the right thing to do. Because God's people submit to earthly authority. One of those taken from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar was Daniel. And he is a textbook example of how to behave. As much as he possibly could, he submitted to his Babylonian captors and he followed their laws and his customs as far as he possibly could. The where areas, we know, where his conscience before God would not permit him to tread. Some of the fine food that they were offered would have defiled him if he ate it according to the Mosaic law. Some of it perhaps was that type of food that was declared unclean food in the law. Some of it perhaps had previously been offered to pagan idols so he would not eat it. Uh, Whichever was the case, his conscience would not allow him to partake of that food. So he refused to. But what did he do? He boldly, wisely, courteously made alternative arrangements. Likewise, the situation that resulted in him being thrown into the lion's den. An edict went out in Babylon. Any man who prays to any god, instead of making his request to the king, which was King Darius at that point, that man will be thrown into the den of lions. So Daniel went home and continued to do what he'd done for years. With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Because you see, Daniel followed the golden rule. If it meant disobeying God, if it meant falling into idolatry, then he could not and would not comply with their requests. He knew when and why the line had to be drawn across which he would not step. But aside from that, he submitted to their authority and he was even promoted high up in Babylonian civil service. He worked for them. He received wages from them. And it was all okay. Just like Joseph did in Egypt. And we read, God meant it for good. Jesus lived in a land occupied by a foreign power. 
as did the apostles and all in the early church. Where are the accounts of them rising up in opposition against civil authorities and persistently and flagrantly flouting their laws? Nowhere. But there's one very good example where they did disobey the local authorities. They were told they had to stop preaching. Well, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And carry on preaching, they did. And it got them into trouble again and again and again. But that, that's one thing we can't do. And we see them following these biblical principles. Peter and Paul, in their letters, explicitly put these principles in writing to put the subject beyond any doubt. You can read the opening chapters of Romans 13. You can read in 1 Peter 2, where Peter says we are to submit to all civil authority. And he says, this is the will of God. It's a theme we don't talk about very often, perhaps. But it's one that the Bible covers and it's one that does come to us, doesn't it? We, we have to think about these things. As much as your conscience permits you before the word of God, and it has to be the word of God that is governing your conscience, not your own likes and dislikes. It's the word of God that governs conscience. You are to live in submission under all civil authority. So, for example, as a church, we have to have written policies for things like safeguarding, data protection. We have to have them. So we have them. We must comply. We have to have indemnity insurance. So we have it. These things don't impinge upon our obedience to God. These things are not idolatry. These things are not evil. So we must comply with them. And we do, because we must. When we applied to become a charitable incorporated organisation, which is a phrase I'm glad I don't have to say very often, we made sure that everything that we believe in and stand for was written down in the application we made to them. And they gave us the green light, and we said, great, we'll take it, thank you. We're happy to proceed. We have certain legal duties and responsibilities now, but none of them impinge upon our obedience to God. None of them impinge upon our work as a local church. And so we happily comply with them. We're required to. We must. We must submit to them. It's the will of God that we do so. And so you see how examples and instruction that we have in God's word assist us in navigating our journey through this sinful and godless world in which we live. It's hard sometimes, and sometimes tough decisions have to be taken. But with God's word in your hand, you can find the right path that you're supposed to tread. And we also have the encouragement from God's word with the Lord's people that when the time comes when we have to stand and say no, we know the Lord will be with us and he'll keep us and he'll protect us and he'll strengthen us. That's the first important principle that we see here. We don't mention it a lot, but it's an important one. The second is similar and that's Receiving benefits from earthly sources. Receiving benefits from earthly sources. 
worldly sources. Some of you might wonder if it's okay to take anything that may smack of a government grant or a handout. Should you do it? Should the church do it? I think God's word shows us that it's perfectly permissible. Look at all the things that the Lord's people are about to receive from the hands of a pagan king. And look at Ezra's response and conclusion to it. Blessed be the Lord God who's put this thing in the king's heart and has extended mercy to me before the king. I was encouraged. The hand of the Lord my God was upon me. God uses all sorts of means to provide for his people. His providential care can work in all kinds of different ways. A little guidance is necessary though, isn't it? For one thing, in this story, and we have to take each thing in its context, don't we? In this story, we see that God's people are making a direct application to the king for considerable help and assistance. Now, does that mean that we can always do the same? Well, within certain boundaries, probably yes. But within other boundaries, often it will be no. For one thing, in the context of this story, it's important to remember that Babylon as a nation had unlawfully ransacked Jerusalem by force and the Jews were actually asking for that which was rightfully theirs in the first place to be restored to them. And they were asking for Babylon to assist in reinstating that which Babylon had destroyed and taken away. That's not an unreasonable request, is it, in those circumstances? And it's not quite the same as just going and asking for money for nothing. They're asking for Babylon to restore all the damage that they'd done. And that's quite a reasonable request. But for us today, if, if, if some benefit is offered to you in a legitimate way, is it okay to take it? Well, I think probably it is, yeah. <clears throat> Give you an example. We claim money back from the government every year under the gift aid scheme. It's very, very kind of them. They make this offer to charities. Anything you give, if you've paid tax on it to us, we'll give you your tax back. Well, thank you very much. We'll take it, thank you. We're at complete liberty to do that, so we do. What should our attitude be? It should be the same as Ezra's. Well, we thank God for his mercy towards us and we receive it with thanksgiving and with gratitude. That's great, it's wonderful. It's not always that straightforward, is it? I remember a pastor being asked if he thought the church should ever apply for a lottery grant. Hmm. Here's his reply. You may agree, you may disagree, but it's good to think about these things, isn't it? Here's his reply. <coughs> Should the church apply for a lottery grant? His reply, no. The church should not seek funds that have been raised in that way. The church should not seek funds that have been raised in that way. But, said someone, what if someone who'd won the lottery gave an unsolicited gift to the church? Out of the blue, they just give it to you. 
his reply? I'd accept it with thanks to God for his remarkable providence. Now you may agree or you may disagree. But we need to think these things through. And we need to remember, working away, unseen by our eyes, is a sovereign and mighty God who Ezra turns to and thanks him for his mercy and his kindness and his grace, shown to him through the hand of a pagan king. Much for us to consider. And amongst all those things that Ezra sees and thanks God for is the change of heart in Artaxerxes. That's the third point. Artaxerxes' change of heart. Now the end of verse 23 perhaps suggests that there is still a degree of self-serving in this king because uh, he says there, why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So perhaps if we appease this God of the Israelites, everything will go well for us. Perhaps there's something of that within Artaxerxes' heart. But this is not the kind of empathy and cooperation that we see from him back in chapter 4 when he ordered his governors to bring the building work in Jerusalem to a halt. Now most scholars presume that those events of chapter 4 when Artaxerxes told them to stop the building that that took place very early in his reign and this now is some years later well, it's a very different response isn't it and as Ezra made his request to Artaxerxes perhaps knowing about his previous re previous reply Maybe others at the time would have said to Ezra, don't you remember the decision he made a few years ago? Why is he going to help us now? Isn't this going to be pointless, making this request to the king? Maybe some of you look around the world at the people who govern us, taking political associations out of out of the equation. You just look in general at the people who govern our nation and all other nations. And perhaps you wonder, what is the point of praying for them? What is the point of praying for them? You look at the state of the UK today. You look at the kinds of men and women who are ruling other nations. You look at their track record. You listen to what they've said and done previously. So you look at Boris Johnson every time his face hits the headlines. You look at Donald Trump. You look at Vladimir Putin in Russia. You look at al-Assad in Assyria. You look at all the European ministers of state and the list goes on. Why should we bother praying for them? Was King Artaxerxes any different to them? Was he? Was he any better than them? Blessed be the God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. God has changed Artaxerxes. 
Why is, it, why is his response different this time? Because God moved in that man's heart, changed it. That's why we should pray for leaders. Did Artaxerxes become a believer? No, I don't think he did. But God could still move his heart for good. Are all our world leaders going to become Christians? I don't know. Probably not. But God can still move their hearts for good. The evidence is before you on the, on the page of Scripture. That's why you should pray for them. That's why you must pray for them. Because God can move their heart. Even if he doesn't save them, he can move them. There is a point in praying because whilst they seem to be completely out of our reach and influence, they are not out of the reach and influence of God, are they? They're not. If you say they are, then God is not God. They do not operate outside of God's sphere of control. He reigns supreme over all things and all people. We have to believe that. And of course, the other thing this reminds us of is that we all need a change of heart, don't we? All of us need a, a change of heart. And we need the kind of change that lies far beyond the capacities of our own minds and our own wills. We can manage to lose our hearts, give our hearts, have our hearts moved, and even have others break them. We speak of having a change of heart. But you know as well as I do that when we speak of a change of heart, it's usually very limited in its extent. It's often a very fragile change. And too often it proves just to be a temporary one. Only God can change the human heart from what it is to what it should be. Only God can do that but he's in the business of changing hearts. Has he changed yours? Because he can. Will you not turn to him and seek him? This is what he does in bringing lost and broken sinners to himself. And that's why you must also remain in earnest prayer for those who as yet do not know Christ. There's two very good reasons at least to join us for prayer this week. There's many more. But there's two at least. And then the final thing this morning we see from this chapter that we're reminded of is the necessity of the word of God. The necessity of the word of God. We saw last week that this man particularly is an expert in the law of God. He knows the word of God through and through. Now back in Jerusalem, they have all the necessary ingredients for the worship of God. They have the temple. It's rebuilt now. They have all the people they need. They have priests there and all the people who are necessary to serve in the temple. We saw that in the list of people who went back in that first return. They have all the paraphernalia that's required for all the offerings and all the sacrifices. They have it all. But simply going through the motions of all that is not enough. They need the word of God. And for that they need men like Ezra. And the only thing that Ezra has at his disposal is the word of God. 
they need to know and understand what this temple worship is all about. They need to be reminded that God's desire is that this worship is to be the outpouring of their love for him. The one who they love with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. They need to see again Isaiah falling down before a holy God and the prophet being overwhelmed by his own sin and unworthiness. They need to hear again the words of David as he cries out to the Lord for forgiveness and cleansing from his sins and for a new heart and for a right spirit. They need to hear again the words in Ezekiel that assure them that God is able to take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They need to hear the words of the psalmist as they extol all the glorious attributes of God in his goodness, his holiness, his faithfulness and his majesty. They need to be reminded once more that this God in heaven whose anger burns hot against sinners calls those same sinners to repentance, to turn and return to him so that they might live because he is also a God who abounds in compassion and mercy and loving kindness and grace towards them. They need to hear the gospel of Christ expounded in Isaiah 53. They need to hear God's many promises towards them, his commitment to them as his people. They need to hear God's exhortations to them that they might walk with him as his people in faith and in love and in gladness and obedience. They need to hear that which will strengthen and comfort them in all of their troubles and in all of their distresses. Where will they find all that? Where can you find it? Here. It's all here. It's all in the word of God. That's what you need. If you don't take away anything else from this morning, take away this. You need a change of heart and only God can change it. You need to know God. You need to return to him so that you may live and walk in communion and fellowship with him but you're not free to decide for yourself how you might do that. You need the Bible. This is where you'll find him. This is where he will find you. This is where he will show himself to you. This is where he will show you to yourself. This is where he'll show you Christ. This is where he'll show you his love and his mercy and his grace. And nowhere else. Open it. Read it. Let God introduce himself to you. Let him show you the way that you should go.